0: We're going to, in this class, really focus a bit on the uh, time of Israel and, and how that they um, will be ready to see the Lord Jesus Christ when he comes and how uh, the kingdom will be established then in the land. And the overall theme that was chosen by the, the brothers in Toronto was from Isaiah 60. As you can see the, that final verse, I we will hasten it in its time. And I thought, actually, no bad thing to just go back and try to get an understanding of these chapters in Isaiah. So, open your Bible as you would, and we'll just sort of do a whistle-stop tour, in a sense, of the the final chapters. And I'll I'll share the screen, and uh, we'll sort of go through a presentation together. But certainly, the the latter half of Isaiah, uh, we think of, don't we, chapter 40 almost kind of begins a new section. And from chapter 40 through to uh, chapter 53, the prophecies focus on the servant, don't they? When we have the servant songs within that. And ultimately, we realize the servant is the Lord Jesus Christ, who lived up to uh, God's standards where Israel badly failed. And the Lord Jesus Christ's service became a victory over sin and death. Uh, and of course, the gospel message is that all people can share in that victory and so after chapter 53 the word servant in the hebrew is always plural now and of course the idea is that now everybody can become a servant of god chapter 54 talks about the tent being enlarged So that the gospel would be open for Jews and for Gentiles. And the call in chapter 55 is to come, come to the new covenant, incline your ear and come unto me. Chapter 55 famously speaks about, doesn't it? Come into fellowship with God. Uh, Chapter 56 says, doesn't it, that his house will be a house of prayer for all peoples. Uh, Chapter 57 speaks about peace to him that is far off, the Gentiles, and to him that is near. And of course, that's picked up in Ephesians 2 to make absolutely clear that it's speaking of the Jews and the Gentiles together being inheritors of the promises. It's a wonderful message, but this is so, so important. It is for those who trust in God. Uh, And that's from chapter 57. And make sure that uh, we just see this chapter 57 and verse 13. He that puts his trust in me shall possess the land and shall inherit my holy mountain. So God wants people who are willing to trust in him. They are the ones who will inherit uh, the land and the holy mountain, those who trust in him. Now, of course, to trust in God doesn't simply mean that one does one's own thing in the hope that God agrees with us. That's man's thinking, isn't it? Gods have been made up through history, which are simply a reflection of man and his current standards. But trusting in Yahweh is different. He's the one true God, the living God, the creator, the giver of life. And trusting in him involves changing our lives to reflect his standards. Now, his perfect standard is seen in his character. We we recognize, don't we, it's about actually looking out for others. And when when you see the character of God as shown to us in Exodus 34 and and time and again brought up through the scriptures, you, you realize that integral to God is the fact that he's merciful. He's gracious. He's long-suffering, abundant in goodness and truth. And those things are about relationships with other people. You, You can't show those by yourself. And so the prophet in chapter 58 goes on to show what it is that God wants from us. Just look in chapter 58 of Isaiah and see verse six, having challenged them, and of course we can't look at all these things in detail, but having challenged them to see how they were trying to come up with their own ways and thinking that by doing their thing, they could please God. He says, look, take a step back, take a breather as it were, think, what is it that I actually want? Verse six, is not this the farce that I have chosen to loose the bands of wickedness, to undo the heavy burdens, to let the oppressed go free and that you break every yoke. And so you can see that actually what God wants is us to try to manifest his character in our lives. Well, sadly, in Israel at the time of Isaiah and still now, God's standard is missing. And the solution then and now is in the Lord Jesus Christ. And what we are going to see now is the power of these prophecies. It's just incredible because they're looking beyond the days of Isaiah, beyond the days of the first coming of the Lord Jesus, right up to his second coming. And although in these prophecies, therefore, we're seeing layers through time, Isaiah's day, the Lord's first coming, the Lord's second coming. What we also see is an absolute consistency that God's standards do not change. And what he's always wanted is faith. And what he always will want is faith. People who trust in him. Now, one thing that will never change is that God wants us to recognize the problem of sin. And in chapter 59, this is made incredibly clear. So, so open your eyes now, Isaiah 59 and verse 1. Behold, the Lord's hand is not shortened that it cannot save, neither his ear heavy that it cannot hear. But your iniquities have separated between you and your God and your sins have hid his face from you that he will not hear. Now, this continues through these verses and I look down now to verse seven. He says their feet run to evil. They make haste to shed innocent blood. Their thoughts are thoughts of iniquity. Wasting and destruction are in their paths. The way of peace they know not. Now, I'd like to, to notice that in your margin, if you've got a marginal reference, you'll see that verse seven and eight here is cited by the Apostle Paul in Romans chapter three. We're not going to turn to Romans just now, but here is what's so interesting about that. Romans, if you have done any study on Romans, you'll know that chapter one of Romans begins by surveying the world around us and showing how seeped in sin it is. But by chapter three of Romans, the point is made abundantly clear that each of us needs to see the problem in our own lives. Now, with that in mind, notice this now. All the pronouns in these first few verses of Isaiah 59 are your, their, they. So in other words, it's looking on at the problem. So so look back to verse two, your iniquities, your sins. Okay. where else could you see it verse three your hands your fingers your lips are spoken lies your tongues mutter perverseness and it keeps on going in that vein it's you 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 so externally looking and saying look at the problem of sin but what we also see is that it changes in verse nine look at this now therefore is judgment far from us neither doth justice overtake us. We wait for light, but behold obscurity for brightness, but we walk in darkness. We grope for the wall like the blind. And so can you see that the pronouns have changed from externally looking at the third person to now owning it, we, us, we're part of the problem. And so the pronouns are making us personalize and own the situation we too are in this, we're all entrenched in the problem of sin and it's imperative that we recognise how that all of us have fallen short of the glory of God and in Romans at this point the apostle shows that the solution to the problem of sin is the Lord God setting forth his son to declare his righteousness, that's in Romans 3. Now, Again, I know that we're not looking at Romans 3 just now, but bear in mind that that's how Romans set it up. It looks at the problem of sin in the world in general, makes us own the problem, chapter 2 and chapter 3. All of us have fallen short of the glory of God, and then looks to the solution in chapter 3 that God sets forth his son to declare his righteousness. Well, with that in mind, look now to the solution here in verse 16 in Isaiah 59. God saw that there was no man and wondered that there was no intercessor. Therefore, his arm brought salvation unto him, and his righteousness it sustained him. For he put on righteousness as a breastplate and a helmet of salvation upon his head, and he put on the garments of vengeance for clothing, and was clad with zeal as a cloak. So, to me, that's just so interesting that the Isaiah 59. Is, is, is in a sense so similar to the argument that we see in the opening chapters of Romans. It looks around at the problem of sin, you, your, like, see the problem externally, but then makes us realise that we've got to own the problem of sin. We too are in it, but everybody then can look to the solution, the Lord Jesus Christ, who came to declare the righteousness of God. Now, these verses then look beyond God's provision of the Lord Jesus Christ at his first coming. And we know that because we note from verse 20 of Isaiah 59 that that verse is cited in Romans 11. So, again, uh, if you're like me, you enjoy sort of being able to mark up your Bible, you might circle Romans 11, verse 26 and 27 in your margin. See that we're about to see a divine commentary here. Now I'm going to put this on the screen for us because I want you to note the slightly different point that the inspired writer makes. Can you see from the screen that Isaiah is showing us in verse 20 how the Redeemer will come to Israel? Okay so that's the, the key thing. Now this is now talking about the Lord Jesus Christ's second coming and we'll, we'll be able to prove that shortly. So we know that the Redeemer is the Lord Jesus Christ and the saints, the march of the rainbowed angel. So, of course, they're coming just after the, the, the grain harvest that uh, Brother Stephen put up earlier, that that second judgment. So this is why these things could actually be happening post us being taken away. The judgment's going to happen where we're involved in the judgment and then we'll be involved in going up. That's what the march of the rainbowed angel is, the Lord Jesus and the saints going up to Jerusalem to rescue them from the northern invader. So can you see that actually the northern invasion may well happen after we've been taken away, because we'll be involved in the rescue effort that's going up. But for now, let's just get this simple point that the Redeemer will come to Zion. Okay, the Redeemer will come to Zion. But in Romans, the inspired apostle says a deliverer will come out of Zion. And the apostle is making the point that the deliverance from the northern invader, from Go, the latter-day Assyrian, is just the beginning. And now deliverance will come out of Zion. As the kingdom set up, deliverance will now come out of Zion. And another point that we'd like to just make here, and again, I've uh, highlighted this in red is where Isaiah focuses on the need for a reaction from the Jews, in other words, they'll need to turn from transgression, and of course that's true, the apostle who's concluding the grand argument of Romans that salvation is God's provision puts the focus on the Lord Jesus, the deliverer that God has provided, and it's the return of the Lord Jesus. As Brother John has already said, that's going to be the key catalyst. It's his work, no. Acts 1, verse 6. Will you at this time restore again the kingdom to Israel? It's the Lord Jesus Christ's work that is going to be the catalyst for Israel ultimately converting. Both passages, Isaiah and Romans, in their slightly wider context, show us the need for a personal reaction. Salvation is provided for those who want it and respond in faith but both passages also show that salvation is god's provision hence in verse 16 let's read it again he saw there was no man and wondered there was no intercessor therefore his arm brought salvation unto him his righteousness it sustained him salvation is god's provision and what we've got a picture there in verse 16 and 17 is god through the lord jesus christ doing battle with sin. Let's look again carefully now at verse 20. We're told here, aren't we, that the Redeemer shall come to Zion and unto them that turn from transgression in Jacob, saith the Lord. I believe that the Lord Jesus will deliver a people who have a spirit willing to turn. Circle the word turn. And come with me to Malachi chapter 3. So this word turn is what we're focusing on now. They're going to turn from transgression. We're going to go to Malachi chapter 3. Now, of course, we're going to come back to Isaiah. But let's turn across to Malachi chapter 3. So Malachi 3, and we're going to go in at verse 6. I, the Lord, I'm the Lord, I'm Yahweh, I change not. Therefore ye sons of Jacob are not consumed. Even from the days of your fathers ye have gone away from mine ordinances and have not kept them. Return unto me and I will return unto you, saith the Lord of hosts. So at this stage the sons of Jacob are not willing to turn, but God is going to prepare them to meet the Lord, the Lord Jesus Christ through the work of Elijah. Now, turn over to chapter four and we'll see this, but just note the connections of thought between Malachi chapter four and this passage that we're in, in Isaiah 59, running into chapter 60. So I'm going to read now from Malachi four, and we're going to then try to open this up a bit. Behold, the day cometh that shall burn as an oven, and all that proud and all that do wickedly shall be stubborn. And the day that cometh shall burn them up, saith the Lord of hosts, that it shall leave neither root nor branch. Armageddon. Unto you that fear my name shall the Son of Righteousness arise with healing in his wings. And ye shall go forth and grow up as calves of the stall. And you, the Jews, shall tread down the wicked. So they're going to be empowered by God. Zechariah 10 would be a good cross-reference that we're not going to have time to look at now. But you will tread down the wicked and they shall be ashes under the soles of your feet in the day that I shall do this, saith the Lord of hosts. And now the exhortation to Israel. Remember ye the law of Moses, my servant, which I commanded unto him in Horeb for all Israel, even the statutes and judgments, Behold, I will send you Elijah the prophet before the coming of the great and dreadful day of the Lord. So Elijah's got to go before Armageddon and he shall turn the heart of the fathers to the children and the heart of the children to their fathers, lest I come and smite the earth with a curse. So we can see from verse 8 that Elijah's work, he's sent by the Lord God. So, again, you think in terms of the timings of this, it might be that the resurrection happens. Elijah, as with others, will be resurrected. The judgment will happen, will also be judged. And it seems that Elijah then will be sent out straight away to get to Jerusalem, to Judah. Remember, Malachi is to the Jews of Jerusalem and Judah. You know, that this is where Elijah's work first starts, we believe. And he's going to help them to see from the law of Moses that The the Lord Jesus Christ is the Messiah. And of course, then when the Lord Jesus Christ does come, they are prepared to meet him. I'd like to think to ourselves, what is the curse in verse eight that Elijah averts? Well, I'd like to tentatively suggest this, that the curse is the fact that the Lord Jesus, when he sets up the kingdom, if he when he was coming to Judah, to Jerusalem, there wasn't a remnant there that Elijah had turned, then the land would need to be utterly destroyed. That's the the Hebrew word that's used in 1 Samuel 15. So in other words, Elijah's uh, work averts utter destruction. So when Jesus comes, he would have to utterly destroy the land to set up the kingdom if it wasn't for the fact that there is a faithful remnant. Elijah's work has has done something now of course that would add to the terribleness of Armageddon in terms of that utter destruction but would be necessary to purge the land before the setting up of the kingdom Romans 9 makes a point so there's my suggestion just uh, read it out there in setting up the kingdom Jesus would have to utterly destroy to purge the land However, because of Elijah's teaching, there will be a faithful remnant, which the Lord Jesus Christ will come to save. Now, I want to just see that in Romans chapter nine, the apostle inciting Isaiah um, speaks about the fact that the, the land would need to be utterly destroyed. It would be treated like Sodom and Gomorrah if it wasn't for the fact that there was a remnant who have been turned. And that remnant, we believe, is the work of Elijah to turn them. And so the Lord Jesus returns to Jerusalem then as a a deliverer to that remnant. So let's move on now and ask the question, what will Elijah talk to the Jews about to prepare them for the Lord Jesus Christ? Well, it might be that here in Malachi 4 and verse 4 is a real clue as to what Elijah will speak about. So remember how this paragraph begins. Remember ye the law of Moses, my servant, which I commanded unto him in Horeb for all Israel, even the statutes and judgments. Now, if we take the time to look up these words, there seems to be a sure connection with Leviticus 26. So I I put that on the screen for you. And I'd like us to go back to Leviticus 26 now. So let's all turn together to to Leviticus, and to chapter 26. And as you're you're turning there, I I wonder if, like me, you've questioned before and thought, I wonder why it would be useful for them to remember the law of Moses. Why is that the, the, the exhortation to them in preparing for the return of the Lord Jesus? Isn't that what they need to come away from to enter the new covenant? Well, of course, there is a sense that, yes, they do need to come away from it in believing that by keeping the law that they can earn salvation but actually the law never did teach that and so the law of Moses is the perfect place for Elijah to turn to because rightly expounded it will show their need and point them to the Lord Jesus Christ that is exactly what the law was there to do isn't it that it showed the problem of sin so Galatians 3 verse 19 it was added because of transgressions, that was the point of the law, to show, the highlight the problem of sin. But it also showed the solution. So the sacrifices they were bringing were all the time pointing to the Lord Jesus Christ. And so actually turning to the Lord Moses is is the perfect place for Elijah to turn, to help them to come, uh, to realize their problem and their solution in the Lord Jesus Christ. So even in Sinai, if they truly listened to Moses, they'd have seen that their return to the land wasn't to do with them keeping the law, but but rather the promises that God made to their fathers. And here in Leviticus 26, it explains how that if, if they wouldn't listen to God and they would walk contrary to his ways, they would be scattered. So let's just pick this up now. So Leviticus 26, verse 27. If you will not for all this hearken unto me, but walk contrary to me, then I will walk contrary unto you also in fury. And I will, even I will chastise you seven times for your sins. You shall eat the flesh of your sons and the flesh of your daughter shall eat. I will destroy your high places and cut down your images and cast your carcasses upon the carcasses of your idols and my soul shall abhor you. And I will make your cities waste and bring your sanctuaries unto desolation. And I will not smell the savour of your sweet odours. And I will bring the land into desolation. and Your enemies that dwell therein shall be astonished at it. And I will scatter you among the heathen and will draw out a sword after you. And your land shall be desolate and your cities shall be a waste now of course that's just what happened when the Assyrians came then the Babylonians and then the Romans in AD 70 but you know this chapter in Leviticus ends with a section which uh, brother John Martin in his book on Leviticus entitles the fulfillment of the Abrahamic covenant and it starts this section in verse forty. And goes through to verse 46. But do you notice that verse 40, the fulfillment of the Abrahamic covenant, as, as Brother John has sort of t- it's titled this section, as it were, it begins with the acknowledgement of the problem of sin. If they confess their iniquity and the iniquity of their father, that's what's got to come first. They've got to see the problem. Hence the law of Moses. That shows, it highlights the problem, but it can also show the solution. But look now to verse 46. These are the statutes and the judgments of the Lord, which the Lord made between him and the children of Israel in Mount Sinai by the hand of Moses. So that's where this section, verse 40, uh, verse 46 ends. And we see a clear connection there to Malachi chapter four. And we wonder if this is where the the, uh, work of Elijah is going to focus on helping Israel to understand their problem, but look in faith for the solution. If they will humble themselves and accept that they've suffered as a nation because of their disobedience, if they will do that, then look, verse 42, then will I remember my covenant with Jacob and also my covenant with Isaac and also my covenant with Abraham. Will I remember? And I will remember the land The land also shall be left of them and shall enjoy herself. So it goes on to start speaking about the blessings. So God says, look, if they will recognize the problem, then he will remember his covenant with Jacob, Isaac and Abraham, with the fathers. And of course, we recognize that the work of Elijah is to turn the hearts of the children to the fathers. It's really clear that the fulfillment of the covenant is not going to be based on their righteousness as a nation because like the rest of us they are sinners their their disobedience has let them down but the lord god if they're willing to acknowledge their problem is willing to save even though they've despised god's ways in the past he says in verse 44 yet for all that when they be in the land of their enemies i will not cast them away Neither will I abhor them to destroy them utterly. I'm not going to destroy them utterly and to break my covenant with them. For I am Yahweh, their God. For I will, for their sakes, remember the covenant of their ancestors, whom I brought forth out of the land of Egypt in the sight of the heathen, that I might be their God. I am Yahweh. And notice that uh, verse 44, I will not cast them away is picked up in Romans 11 and verse 2, that famous chapter about the restoration of Israel. Hath God cast off Israel? By no means, of course he hasn't. It would be logical, logical, therefore, to suggest, wouldn't it, that Elijah will take them through the law of Moses and help them to see their need, which prepares them for the Lord Jesus, the messenger of the covenant. Now, when we look at Israel now, yes, that there might be pockets of Jews who are opening their eyes to the gospel. But on the whole, it's still a secular, godless nation. And God will bring that nation to its knees by the northern invader. Come back with me now to Isaiah 59. The the northern invader, Brother Thomas Referred regularly to as the latter day Assyrian, Gog, as Peter's spoken about, the king of fierce countenance. This is who we're speaking about in verse 19, the enemy. So, Isaiah 59 and verse 19. So shall they fear the name of Yahweh from the west and his glory from the rising of the sun, when the enemy shall come in like a flood the spirit of Yahweh shall lift up a standard against him so the enemy there that shall come like a flood is speaking of Gog the latter day Assyrian just just note the similarity in language that I've shown you on the screen there between Isaiah 59 the, the enemy coming like a flood and the king of Assyria who came like a flood in the days of Hezekiah. And I've given you there a cross-reference to Isaiah 8 and verses 7 and 8. This is the latter-day Assyrian, Gog, or the land of Magog, Russia, that will come down the enemy against Israel. And the consequence of the Gogin confederacy coming against Israel is enormous. It scatters many of the Jews once more from their land. Zechariah speaks of half of the city going into captivity it's going to be a time of trouble such as never was but out of that time of trouble will come a time of tremendous blessing as the Lord Jesus Christ with the saints established the kingdom of God on earth and Israel's special place in this kingdom is obvious geographically that the kingdom has its capital in Jerusalem the Lord Jesus Christ will sit on the throne of his father, David. That The temple will be built there. And this section of Isaiah, now going through right to the end of Isaiah, is going to show us pictures of that kingdom time. And right now, we're going to just focus in on this end of chapter 59 and coming into chapter 60 and see a picture of the Jews during that time. Because this is the remnant that will come through the great purging of the land. And having turned to the Lord Jesus Christ as their saviour. Now, of course, he's come. He came to deliver them from that northern uh, invader. And now that they've turned to him, we're going to see how different things come for them. I'd like us to just go in at verse 21 now. So the redeemer is going to come, verse 20, to return transgression in Jacob, saith the Lord. As for me, this is my covenant with them, saith Yahweh, my spirit that is upon thee and my words which I put in thy mouth shall not depart out of thy mouth, nor out of the mouth of thy seed, nor out of the mouth of thy seed, seed, saith the Lord, from henceforth and forever. So Israel is the mortal population still having children okay, and grandchildren, seed and seed, seed. They are now. Going to be part of this covenant. And it's speaking, of course, about the new covenant. When it's saying there in verse 21, again, look at your cross references in your margin. Mine's got Jeremiah 31, verse 31. This is what these passages are speaking of. And again, I put them up on the screen for you to just be able to see. Uh, Jeremiah 31, Ezekiel chapter 36, that is the new covenant, it's the gospel. And because the Jews turn to God, he will willingly forgive them. Their relationship be based upon the promises fulfilled in the Lord Jesus Christ. And there are those lovely passages that are speaking of this same thing. You notice the similarity in languages, how we come to recognize that. Of course, we know this covenant involves them being forgiven by God jeremiah 31 makes that point that's cited in in hebrews 10 it's the it's the new covenant but we could also note that romans 11 when citing isaiah 59 connects this verse so i'd like you again to just look back to verse 20 and notice that that is cited in romans 11 in my margin verse 26 and 27 and romans 11 Now, it's worth just turning to this. Let's just hold Isaiah and come with me to Romans 11 and just see how clear this is, that this is the new covenant. And it's the covenant that can deal with the problem of sin, which, of course, is only the covenant of the Lord Jesus Christ. So let's just have a quick look at Romans 11. Hopefully we can see this. apologies so romans chapter 11 and verse 26 all israel shall be saved as it is written there shall come out to zion the deliverer he shall turn away ungodliness from jacob this is my covenant unto them okay so we look back to isaiah 59 verse 21 this is my covenant with them but then romans 11 changes it and actually cites from isaiah 27 when i shall take away their sins but it absolutely sort of makes it crystal clear that the covenant which is being spoken of there in Isaiah 59 is the new covenant, the covenant of Jeremiah 31, that what's spoken of in Ezekiel 36, when Israel will turn to the Lord God, uh, turn to the Lord Jesus Christ and recognize that he is their savior. Wonderful times to come. So come back now to Isaiah And let's just see now how, in a remarkable way, Israel become empowered by God. Just look how amazing this time will be. What a change we're going to see in the land of Israel. And I'm going to read Isaiah 60 now, and I'm just going to keep reading. And I'm going to try to put some emphasis in to try to uh, help us just see the focus on Israel here. Isaiah 60. Arise, shine, for thy light is come, and the glory of Yahweh is risen upon thee. Behold, the darkness shall cover the peoples, the earth and gross darkness the peoples. But Yahweh shall arise upon thee, and his glory shall be seen upon thee. And the Gentiles shall come to thy light, and the kings to the brightness of thy rising. Lift up thine eyes round about and see all they gather themselves together. They come to thee. Thy sons and shall come from far, and thy daughters shall be nursed at thy side. Then, shalt they, uh, then thou shalt see and flow together, and thine heart shall fear and be enlarged, because the abundance of the sea shall be converted unto thee. The wealth of the Gentiles shall come unto thee. The multitude of camels shall cover thee, the dromedaries of Midian and Ephah. All they from Sheba shall come. They shall bring gold and incense and shall show forth the praises of Yahweh. All the flocks of Kedah shall be gathered together unto thee. The rams of Nabael shall minister unto thee. They shall come up with acceptance on mine altar and I will glorify the house of my glory. Who are these that fly as a cloud and as the doves to their windows? Surely the isles shall wait for me in the ships of Tarshish first to bring thy sons from far, their silver and their gold with them, unto the name of Yahweh thy God, unto the Holy One of Israel, because he has glorified thee. The sons of strangers shall build up thy walls, and their kings shall minister unto thee. In my wrath I smote thee, but in my favor have I had mercy on thee. And we see that's so cited again, Romans 11. Therefore, thy gates shall be open continually, they shall not be shut day nor night that men may bring unto thee the forces of the Gentiles and their kings may be brought. For the nation and kingdom that will not serve thee shall perish. Yea, those nations shall be utterly wasted. The glory of Lebanon shall come unto thee, the fir tree, the pine tree, the box together to beautify the place of my sanctuary. And I will make the place of my feet glorious. The sons also of them that afflicted thee shall come bending unto thee. And all they that despise thee shall bow themselves down at the soles of thy feet. They shall call thee the city of Yahweh, the Zion of the Holy One of Israel. So I've stopped reading there. And uh, yeah, I, I hope that uh, you sort of got the, the picture of what I was trying to get across. That we see here Israel exalted. The nations coming to Jerusalem, recognizing that this is God's city. These are his people. It's thrilling. Looking back to verses one and two, we notice that Isaiah nine, the, the promise of the Lord Jesus Christ first coming was described like this. The people that walked in darkness have seen a great light. They that dwell in the land of the shadow of death, upon them have the light shined. Remember that from Isaiah nine? And we can see that that was just the beginnings of God's work in providing salvation, in setting up a kingdom that, yes, the Lord Jesus Christ first came, but this is looking to a time beyond that when the Lord Jesus Christ will come again and Israel will be a light for all nations because of the rule of the Lord Jesus. And we notice from verses three and four and really reading through this chapter that the Gentile nations are now pro israel what a contrast to, to, to what we see nowadays with anti-Semitism being rife. The nations come and they bring gifts, including gifts for sacrifice. And we notice, too, that the first nations that are listed, those in verses six and seven, are the close relatives of Israel. So I've shown you that on the screen now. So Midian, Ephah, Sheba, Kedah, nabeoth, those nations, they are all nations who are closely related to Israel. So they're Abraham's son through Keturah or uh, Abraham's grandson. So you just notice and notice all of those first nations in terms of where they are situated. We would call it modern day Arabia, Saudi Arabia. And what we find so interesting about that is when we see the nations aligning. We keep seeing on the news, don't we, that Saudi Arabia are likely to follow on in signing up to the peace accords as Bahrain and the United Arab Emirates have. And that would fit perfectly then with Bible prophecy, wouldn't it? So what a thrilling sign if we do get to see that happen before we're called away. But what's more, because of Brexit, we know that Britain is in line with those nations. Remember, it's Ezekiel 38, verse 13, does it? Tarshish is with Sheba, as mentioned here, and Dedan. So, Dedam's another place in southern Saudi Arabia, where, where next to Sheba. So, it's really interesting, isn't it, to see that Britain is on that side, okay, with those nations. And so, no surprise that Britain, verse 9, is first on the list of the nations that's coming to pay homage and come up to Israel. Surely, verse nine, the the Isles shall wait for me and the ships of Tarshish first, to bring thy sons from far, their silver and their gold with them, unto the name of Yahweh their God, to the Holy One of Israel, because he has glorified thee. So amazing things to, to, to come. The question posed in verse eight, Who are these that fly as a cloud and as doves to their windows? Seems to be a lovely poetic way of describing the saints and the Jews. The the saints are described as clouds elsewhere, aren't they? For example, in 1 Thessalonians 4, verse 17, or or, or Revelation 1, verse 7, you get the idea of the the saints being described as clouds. And the doves, well, well, the doves are famous for being homing birds, aren't they? So the idea is here that the, the saints are supporting the return of Israel to the land. In the fact, they've got this homing instinct. They're going to come back to their land. And so, yes, we believe that the consequence of Armageddon, that grain harvest, you know, the, uh, when the king of the north, Russia, comes down, the consequence of that is going to be horrific. Many Jews will be scattered from the land. But the saints and other nations will support the Jews from around the world being able to come back to their homeland. You you see another cross-reference that's worth just putting in your margin there would be Isaiah 66 and verse 20 uh, against verse 8. That that Yes, the, the, the saints and the other nations will bring the Jews back to their homeland. And so Gentiles then will be involved in the work of rebuilding Jerusalem. Verse 10, the sons of strangers shall build up thy walls. Their kings shall minister unto thee, for in my wrath I smote thee, but in my favour have I had mercy on thee. Therefore thy gates shall be open continually. They shall not be shut day nor night, that men may bring unto thee the wealth of the Gentiles, that their kings may be brought. Amazing to think of that time to come. And building the, the wonderful temple, as described in the final chapters of Ezekiel. but That's going to happen, isn't it? Because we see in verse 13, the glory of Lebanon shall come unto thee. So the cedars of Lebanon used in that, the fir tree, the pine tree, the box together to beautify the place of my sanctuary, God's temple. And I'll make the place of my feet glorious. What a contrast we see to the societies that we live in. This kingdom picture we're being shown here. Verse 18, Violence shall no more be heard in thy land, wasting nor destruction within thy borders, but thou shalt call thy walls salvation and thy gates praise. The sun shall be no more thy light by day, neither for brightness shall the moon give light unto thee, but Yahweh shall be unto thee an everlasting light and thy God thy glory. We notice here some connections into the final chapters of Revelation which make it clear to us that the picture we're seeing is still to come. The millennial reign of the Lord Jesus Christ. And you can see how clear those connections are into Revelation 21 and 22. And there in Revelation, the Lord Jesus Christ uses the the literal physical descriptions here in Isaiah to describe the bride, the ecclesia in harmony with the Lord Jesus and the Lord God. And whilst the physical is necessary, and we we believe absolutely that, you know, there's going to be a physical kingdom on earth and there'll be a temple that's there and people will physically be coming to it. Actually, in terms of the physical building, what the point of revelation is, and the point that we have to kind of remember now, is that ultimately what God wants is people. People who want, who are willing to manifest his character. And so we read in verse 21, thy people also shall be all righteous. They shall inherit the land forever. The branch of my planting, the work of my hands, that I may be glorified. A little one shall become a thousand, and a small one, a strong nation. I, Yahweh, will hasten it in its time. And so we should be looking to reflect these principles now as the Ecclesia of God. We've got to make every effort to keep the truth shining, keep encouraging one another by looking at the signs of our times, having absolute confidence that the day is coming, indeed hastening. It could be any day that we are taken when the son of righteousness will arise with healing in his wings.